Cinderella, funny fella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. Welcome again to the Fringeworthy Podcast. This is part three of our adventuring into the far past. We've already spoken about pirates and dinosaurs, and we've had whole sessions on that because we know how much people like pirates and dinosaurs. But we want to speak more generally about what your adventures in the past would be like. Now, when we speak of the far past, we're talking about a period before the Industrial Revolution. So this includes, let's say, any time before uh, the 1800s all the way to maybe two, 3,000 years B.C. If you want to go into prehistory, fine. You can do whatever you want because nobody remembers what happened back then. Uh, the oldest uh, useful structures that people are actually using right now, I think, was built in the 4th century, and everything before that is ruins. And we have very few records back then. So you can do whatever you want to if you want to go back far enough. But we're really talking about the civilizations that you might be running into in the far past. And as we mentioned before, uh, when we talk about uh, how a world would be in the far past, there's a couple of different ways that this might happen as you explore the fringe past. It might be a situation where we refer to as time shift, where on that particular alternate, time sort of history sort of started later than it did in our world. It's kind of, it's, it's a very close alternate. Uh, so, but it ha everything happened a little bit later than they did in our world. So essentially, all the events in the past were the same, except that now it's only, let's say, the 600s. When you go through the portal, you find a world that's in the middle of the 600s versus the 21st century or whenever your fringeworthy campaign runs. It could also be um, an alternate uh, that's completely different where you've had a lot of different changes in the past, or there might be a different race that arose, like reptilians could have arisen and grown up to, and they went through many of the same types of civilizations. They might be in the middle of the Bronze Age or the Iron Age. And so the civilization would be recognizable, the technology would be recognizable, but it would be somebody different. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. I just wanted you to understand the fact that when we talk about adventuring in the far past, we're not really talking about time travel. We're talking about going to a world in which it has the aspects of those previous times. But speaking of things like these different kinds of ages, Lix, you wanted to describe them to us. We have the different ages of man that we that we generally tend to think of that have been, you know, say outlined for you, you know, as early as elementary school. You know, you have your, your Stone Age, your Bronze Age, and, and the Iron Age. I think we should we should talk about those just a little bit because they could come into play quite often when traveling into the far past. Let's start with the Stone Age. Uh, you know, that breaks down into two eras. 
there's Paleolithic and the Neolithic, and it basically means Old Stone or New Stone Age. If you go into the Old Stone Age, the Paleolithic era, you're talking about I don't know, anywhere up to 2 million years ago to about 15,000 years, roughly. Thereabouts, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so prehistory, like I was mentioning. Yeah, yeah, but that would be a hard era to, to run a, a session in. I mean, you could... Of course, and it would it would take some research on your part if you want to do it accurately, but the people you'd be running into would be exceptionally primitive. Blitz, would they have language? That's questionable, but anthropologists seem to think that that Neanderthals may have had a very rudimentary language, but anything older than Neanderthal probably not, just because of biological features, like they didn't have the vocal cords for it. Homo sapiens and Homo sapiens sapiens, which which oh, sure. we are, we had you know they had language back maybe probably fifty thousand years ago. Right, right. That's they had the proper structure for that. Yeah, Neanderthals, if anything, they probably they probably talked like this. <laughs> if anything, why wouldn't that be, John? Oh, because their voice box is actually higher up in their throat. We have a larger one, so we we have a much more resonant voice. So with a shorter voice box, you get a higher pitch voice. Now, oh. <laughs> it's it's also um, it's also possible that it's an alternate. Maybe Neanderthals can talk. Who knows? Maybe they have an English accent for all we know. I'm only speaking of what we know. With an alternate, you can change whatever you want to change about them. Um, later Neolithic era, say around 12,000 BC or BCE, as you want to refer to it. The first cities and stuff. And if you want to get a good idea of what those people were like, imagine some of the Native American tribes living in areas like Greece and Mesopotamia, you know, running around with, you know, wooden arrows with stone heads on them, sharpened stone heads, like, like the Clovis points, or atlatls, actually, is probably what you run into a lot of. And that would be kind of interesting, actually, because, you know, those people would have a language, you know, they're, they're talking, they're, they're they're living in groups, they're interacting with other groups, there's trade going on, agriculture is trying to get a foothold. The portal gives you the language. That would be very interesting. You know, you show up and you're grunting and whistling and whatever, you know, whatever their language consisted of. The game master's going to have to do some research on it if he wants to be accurate. Europe is pretty much the classic. Everybody knows what's going on in Europe. But you got to remember, you get down to Australia and you've got a lot going on down there. Those people are, are pretty advanced. You know, they have, they have boats. It's 50,000 years B.C. And, and they're on boats. Um, not big boats, not like ships or anything, but you're like talking dugouts and stuff, but they're actually building, you know, little rudimentary boats and um, they have decent hunting tools because they, as soon as they land, they wipe out all the megafauna in the area. They arrive and right around the time they arrive, all the megafauna disappears. And that, that happens, seems to happen everywhere in the world. You know, whenever humans, the modern, or modern humans arrive, that's right about the time the megafauna in the area disappear in the South Asian areas, if you get there before 13,000 years, you might actually be able to run into Homo florensis. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're little hobbit guys. The little hobbits down there in Sumatra. They may still be... Well, of course, some people are saying they still are because there still are legends of, 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 the, of the small people, so we don't know until someone catches one if they <laughs> exist or not. I doubt we... I, I, the trouble is it's like trying to catch a kid. You know, right. It's going to be a little bit more difficult because they're smart. When we talk about these guys in the past, 
we were talking between 50,000 years and 12,000 years before the common era. Right. And we're talking about uh, mostly nomadic tribes, mm-hmm. no real villages. Hunter-gatherers, about no more than 20 or so people, they would travel around. Some people said they actually had the best life in the world versus the, uh, us folks here where we got to work you know, hours and hours to get our food. Hunter-gatherers actually, for the most part, only need to work about two or three hours a day to get what they need to live on, and then the rest of the day, it's like, they're off. I've read about that. They said that um, they actually had the best leisurely life um, compared to us. Like, we, we're, we're slaves compared to them. Yeah. They did have villages, but they were seasonal villages, and they would travel from season to season to, for different, like, different migrations and different hunting areas. Uh, in the winter time, a lot of times they would get themselves near a, a lake where they could fish all winter long. In the spring and the summer, they would move into areas where they could do a lot of gathering because um, you got you know that's a great time to get nuts and berries and fruits. You know you might see um, circles of stones left over from the area, and right. that's about this it. This is the good place. This is the place we we stayed last season, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so the adventures we'd have in a place like that, you, you go through the portal and you find this kind of uh, environment. I was thinking that th- there's a number of adventures that would that would be easy to do. Uh, there would be find the lost child, which could be combined with the lost child is trapped on a rock and with a large herd of belligerent animals surrounding it. There could be my village is being attacked by that village. Someone giving birth and they're having trouble. You've got the higher technology. You, you get to be uh, the uh, the doctor. On a more formalized situation, there would be adventures, uh, especially later on in the timeline, where you were basically doing big game hunting, or yeah. you'd be going on a safari. You'd be actually bringing people through for the sole purpose of taking them to a world where there's saber two tigers and there are mastodons. And, uh, and, and and maybe even uh, uh, people who want to see something like a Neanderthal, remains of the dinosaurs. Uh, you could go out and hunt them on worlds because, you know, they're, they may be on many worlds. There may be worlds that are full of dinosaurs. This one only has a few, and it's actually safe enough for you to travel around because there aren't any more predators like that. So right. you're just basically taking out the last of them. Just like you're talking about getting rid of the, the megafauna. Well, that could right. be uh, an adventure for the fringeworthy, not just for the natives. You know, this would be a good opportunity to capture, say, a baby mammoth or, or maybe even a couple couple mammoths to bring them back to our world to, you know, re- to, to clone, to, to bring mammoths back and, you know, right. back to life. Because if you could mix them with the animal, with, um, I'm sorry, with elephant DNA, and actually get something very close to a mammoth. Yeah, no, it doesn't get around, approximately around 35, 30,000 years ago was a time when there were four different humans living on Earth. Homo sapiens, of course, Homo neanderthalus, Homo florensis, and Homo erectus. All four were still alive at that point in time. In fact, Homo erectus and Homo florensis and Homo sapiens were all present in Southeast Asia around that time. There's something to look at, too. How did these three different species live together in that area? Did we wipe them out, or did they just get outcompeted? Ultimately, that's going to be a kind of a softest question, because this is an alternate. It's not our world. 
whatever happens there is different than what happened to us. But it would, it might be uh, the GM could play with some possible scenarios. There's the one from uh, Harry Tildove. Basically, he postulated a world where uh, Asians didn't cross the land bridge into the Americas. Homo erectus did. Right, okay. And they basically are alive and well. The Americas, when the Vikings landed on the shore, there was Homo erectus, not uh, Indians hmm. at that point. Right. If you're not familiar with Harry Turtle Dove, he is sort of the guy in alternate history. So I've read a number of his novels that have been very good, but they, they tend to be a little dry sometimes. Well, uh, he, but he, they, he, still, he is he's a, good. He is a Byzantium professor, though. He's a professor of Byzantium, so... It, uh, I'm sorry, isn't that, isn't that a heavy element? Don't you like, get poisoning when you take too much of that? <laughs> I would say so, because he's written a couple of novels based on that, and, 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 and that knowledge. <laughs> I'll tell you, um, uh, Harry Turtle, he's... I personally can't get through one of his novels just because I'm just not a real fan of his character development, but he knows his stuff. I mean, he's a very bright guy. He knows his history so well, in fact, that I think that he's probably one of the few people who can write alternate history as well as he does. Well, the the only novel I've read that I really liked as far as a novel is concerned was, I believe it was called The, the Land Between the Rivers or, or something like that. Oh, and mm-hmm. it was- Between the Rivers. It was a world in which all the gods actually existed, just like you'd imagine the, the gods of Egypt, where there were like a ton of them, and each city had its own personal god, and the gods actually lived in a house in the city, but if it wanted to, it could kind of possess its worshippers, and the worshippers would speak with the god's voice, and you never knew when this was going to happen. And it was all about a man who was a trader going from city to city and some of his adventures. So it was really interesting to see this whole take on the the, the passage of the old gods and, and, and the decline of their power uh, while, there was, while they were still very much present. And I would recommend this book to anybody who'd like to just kind of get an idea of how you could interplay uh, uh, the old concepts of religion with the changes that come with, with civilization. So, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm being a little vague about that, but it's, it, it's a good story, and I, I, I enjoyed reading it, and I would recommend it to anybody who wants to read it. But it's not going to be like most of his novels where he really is doing points of departure, and it's very much a, a difference in how things played out, nothing like supernatural being involved or anything like that. There's a short story of his, which I really like, because it has a really interesting concept. What if the the pillars of Hercules never cracked open and and refilled the Mediterranean basin? Right. It's called uh, Down in the Bottomlands. There's no ocean between Africa and Europe, just something that's deeper and drier and hotter than the Death Valley. Right. It's it's the Mediterranean Valley. Yes. Well, that's um, that's interesting because um, there's this book I read called Noah's Flood, and it and it takes on the premise that near the end of the Ice Age, that there was a, a land wall that was blocking off the what was the valley where the Black Sea would be, and this wall broke, and the Black Sea was formed, and that all the communities that lived uh, below sea level in that area experienced this massive flood, which would seem like the whole world. Um, because that's where a great portion of society was based. It's just interesting when you when you think about the time frame of the last ice age 
and you know the, the glaciers melting and what what's going on because that's another thing you have to consider during the ice age. You gotta remember there are glaciers that are 300 feet, you know, 300 feet high in some cases, and the water level oh, miles thick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, you're right. You're right. It, it, miles high. Right. I'm I'm thinking. I got it backwards. The water table was 300 feet lower. Yes. So you got to remember, Japan is still attached to China by land. Uh, the, the North America is attached to Europe or Eurasia. England is still attached to Europe. Uh, you can walk to Africa from Europe. What you got to remember is, is that that the world is a different place, a completely different place. You know. Uh, it, it was easy for, as a matter of fact, that's, that's why it was so easy for the for Australia to become uh, populated because Indonesia was probably like a country, not a not a set of islands. There is a, tr- a trench between Indonesia and, 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 and Australia. You still needed a boat to get to oh, Australia. Yes. Right, but, right, but but most of the distance can be covered on foot. Yes, it's a different world, you know. There's a lot more access, a lot more movement, and. You know, and things are going to change rapidly. When that ice starts melting, it melts quickly. So, I mean, that, that's kind of a neat adventure idea right there. You come in to an area that's flooding, and you save a whole society of people because they don't know where to go. you got to remember that it's flooding. It's flooding in all different places, and where they run to could be an area that's going to be surrounded by water in no time. So that would be a neat adventure uh, idea for, you know, for, for a modern society. It's like, well, we got to help these people. Yeah, and also don't get... When we talk, you know, the 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 uh, Paleolithic time, or, the, or actually, how can I say, most Paleolithic time, you're dealing with you're dealing with people like Homo erectus, who basically may might have a language, may not. There's a lot of equivocation on that, but for the most part, you're talking really smart apes, and that's not much fun to play with unless you want to play God. Uh, so yeah, the interesting times are when people actually have a language, they have some culture. That could be something interesting to deal with. For the uh, last glaciation, there may actually may have been a civilization, but it got wiped out. Homo sapiens is a lot more varied up until like 60,000 years ago, which corresponds to when the Toba supervolcano went, went boom. Where, where is that? Because you, you mentioned that before, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Toba is actually in Sumatra. The Toba supervolcano went boom. 65,000 years ago, gradually changed the weather. There was a volcanic winter. We went from a very large, varied uh, Homo sapiens population down to maybe 10,000 people. We were almost extinct. We almost got wiped out in that. We had about the same amount of genetic variation that cheetahs do when it comes right down to it. <laughs> and cheetahs ain't got no var- uh, almost got no variation at all either. <laughs> But as we mentioned before, John, we don't want to recommend to game masters that they create scenarios where they go through and a volcano is about to erupt. No, no. Because that's so unlikely to happen just as you go through a portal. That's something that really makes sense in a real, in a true time travel type campaign where you'd be going to those crux points and stuff like that. But it doesn't mean that you can't go to a world where a volcano went off a, a hundred years ago yeah. and they're still seeing the effects of it. Or you were talking about the Pillars of Hercules, which is the, the Straits of Gibraltar. Yeah. Uh, let's say that it was a land bridge and it had cracked on this world and the water was now pouring in. It was a significant amount of water coming in. It was going to take maybe a thousand years to fill the entire place up. 
Yep. But you have all these civilizations that were living down in that basin, which are now going, well, you know, I think we can probably put a dam up here. We can do that. Right. You know, I mean, they're so short-sighted, they don't realize that there's a gigantic ocean uh, uh, 500 miles away, and it's never going to empty out. And, and they still think, that, oh, well, we can still change things, and you can run into that kind of scenario. Yeah. Uh, that's the sort of thing that we're recommending that when we do far past adventures that you see the yeah. kind of long-term changes that are going to occur as the opportunity for the players to be people who can actually help mold societies and help them make important choices so that they will end up possibly surviving or, you know, doing other things. You might be become the progenitors of an entire civilization because you say, you, you people, I've convinced you now, you need to go over to this land to the northeast, uh, which in my world we call Turkey, but it'll be a place where you can survive. Your friends who are staying here one day uh, may find there's a huge wall of water coming down that fast-moving river <laughs> because a big chunk has fallen loose, and, and they're all gone. See what happened to the old homestead, and all they see is a, a widening sea. I just wanted to caution us against the idea of, of creating these these great scenarios where something just happens. This is a world in which there is no agriculture. These people are, are surrounded by grasses, and, and they haven't yet figured out that they can combine them and actually turn them into wheat. So you might go and have find a group of people that are starving to death and say, oh, well, here, you just take these stalks of grasses, and you beat the ends off, and you crush them up, and look, you've got something you can eat. And they're like, oh, my goodness. It does depend on where you are and what time frame you come in, because different people were doing it at different times. So That's true. It's, it's conceivable you could go somewhere where... Their neighbors go, hey, look, you know, maybe you should talk to your neighbors. They got the right idea. Yeah. There might be a group of people who come off the fringe paths who are exploiting these people because they are primitive. And you might end up championing groups of these natives to, against the people that are trying to exploit them. Oh, sure. This would be a good time for, you know, let's say there's a fringe pirate group or, or maybe just a, a, you know, a malignant uh, culture out there, like say, you know, Ided is pretty benign, but let's say there's another group of people who have decided well, we're just going to go out and rob this place for their riches, you know, and they have a government organization behind them. Uh, and maybe they've, they've taken these people and they've forced them into slavery to work gold mines. You know, uh, if, if the world is similar enough, they'll say, well, we know there's a gold mine here and there's going to be one there and there's going to be a diamond mine down here. We'll just have these guys, you know, work them and then we'll pull all these resources in. So that would be an adventure right there, you know, free these poor people who are being taken advantage of by this other group of people. Yeah, grabbing all that low-hanging fruit, getting all the easy, easy to get gold, easy to get diamonds. Sure, yeah, because this stuff is just pouring out of the mountains at this point. Right. It's, you can just find it along the riverbeds. Yep. Leaving the plains and the, and the traveling people behind, as you said, you move up uh, north of uh, 12,000 years yeah. uh, B.C., and you've now got villages, you've got boats. Uh, people are now beginning to travel, and so you can actually start having cities. And, mm -hmm. uh, and cities, of course, when you have cities, you've got trade, and then you've got wars and religion, and you have a, uh, a whole lot of adventures in, in what we would consider to probably be hardly more than a fishing village, but in their eyes was a, was a thriving metropolis. Oh, sure. Once they developed agriculture and God where it was working good, cities got big. 
fast sometimes. We're talking thousand people or more sometimes. Yeah, but that's not big by our standards. We're talking. I know what Bruce is saying. You know, we're we're getting into like actual uh, places where they actually have like a town square. They have temples. They have you know. I mean, this is we're talking actual cities, little. And recent archaeological evidence has pointed out that the original cities were not built for defense. They were built, like you said, Bruce, for trade. Warfare came later on from people who, basically, what we figured out is that people built cities, found that they were good, and then someone else said, but I like his city better. And that's when we got warfare. So the original cities weren't built for defense. They were actually built to be a place to stay, to consolidate everything, to have trade, to worship the gods. But it wasn't there for war. It was there for peaceful purposes, and, and then war came afterwards. So if you found the walled city, it was there to keep out wild animals. It wasn't to keep out troops. No, if you found a walled city, that's to keep out troops. They found a pristine city down in Peru 10,000 years ago. There was no walls. It was just places where the houses were. It was just wide open. This collapsed. Not because of war, because it, it, it encountered massive drought, and it killed the farms, which is another reason why cities go, go out. They, they really didn't know how to control water as, as well as they should have. Irrigation was still a mystery then. They didn't understand rotating crops. They didn't understand erosion, sediment erosion. They didn't understand any of that stuff. And they didn't know how to store food for long periods of time. Early man... He would find something that, that worked, and then that's what he would develop. So he would develop what was called a, a monoculture. So they would grow one thing or two things. Um, and then if you had any kind of blight come through, like any kind of bacteria that, that could kill, uh, like say, for example, bananas is, is one of them. Like the bananas we eat today are nothing like the bananas we ate 100 years ago because that, uh, banana is like a clone crop. So once a bacteria took in one banana, it wiped out the whole crop everywhere. Uh, so what the potato famine was all about. But the, the point of the matter is is that when you run monoculture, if you run into a problem where that type of food does not do well, for example, drought, uh, if you don't have, you're not raising a drought-resistant crop in addition to the one that isn't drought-resistant, boom, there goes your whole city because now everybody's starving. When they developed agriculture, they went from a very highly varied meat diet because the hunter-gatherer diet was incredibly varied. Oh, yeah nuts and fruits, berries, meats, to basically eating multiple meal without salt <laughs> every day of your life. <laughs> right. With the occasional chance you might actually just shoot them to the pot and, you know, and, you know that's about it. Uh, a lot of those early farmers had a really boring diet. It was regular. They ate every year, but they were eating multiple meal without any salt or pepper, or anything at all. And it depends on where you are in the world, because only certain people had domesticated animals. The Europeans and the Asians had a lot of domesticated uh, crop animal, like cattle, or yak, or whatever. Chickens came from China. Chickens came from China, right. The the Mesoamericans, they had dog, I forget what, a llama, maybe, in certain areas, the alpaca, but... Guinea pigs. Guinea pigs, right. And that, that's about it. You know, Rose it depends guinea pig. on... They still cook them. They still cook them today. You can go to a, uh, go to a Peruvian village, and you can get uh, you can get roast guinea pig. Mm. A really great reference for this, and I'll put this in the show notes, is uh, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel. It's a fantastic book for just this sort of. I mean, if you're going to run this type of adventure, I would suggest reading that book for background information. 
because it talks about uh, it talks about how Europe took over everything. Why was Europe the successful one? But the theory that he puts forward are very sound, and they explain a lot about this time period. What you'll get out of it, though, is that you'll learn what animals are domesticated where in the world. Is is a good like that's not up for questioning. In, yeah, because right. he, he does list these are the animals that were domesticated in this area. So from the time that we started, they have villages get the metallurgy going, they have walled cities. Are we still in the Stone Age or have we moved into the Bronze Age? No, we're, we're definitely in the Bronze Age at that point. Okay. Yeah. They discovered copper. It's copper, tin. There's no tin age, but there kind of was. Basically, soft, malleable metal age is a good, is a good term right there. Cause yeah. You can't use it to build your buildings. You can't use it to really, as a structural kind of thing, you can't. Uh, but you can use it to uh, create better weapons. You can use it as fasteners. You can make valuable containers for it. Farming tools. Farming tools, very important. Yeah. Nails. If you want to change a culture, teach them how to make uh, the plow that broke the West. Yeah. If, you can do, if you can teach them how to make that using, using what they have available, they'll triple or quadruple their output in terms of uh, crops. But I think, I think the biggest reason why it's called the Bronze Age as opposed to, you know, the soft metal age or whatever is that, that bronze was pretty much the most useful metal in that time for those people. Like today, cop, yeah. copper is way more useful than bronze to us. But to them, for that society, bronze was, you know, it, it was the thing to have. I mean, the Egyptians, all those temples you see in Egypt, they were carved with bronze tools. It meant that the workers had to sharpen them every, every half an hour. <laughs> all those temples, all those columns, all those carvings were made with bronze tools and a stone hammer. They had all these uses, but again, they weren't very structural yet. So when we got into the Iron Age, with the real benefit of having iron, the fact that you can now build very big buildings because you had those structural iron supports in them, what was it that iron gave us? Weapons. Really just weapons? And gave us uh, hydraulic concrete. They gave us the arch. They, they started making a lot of their st- weapons out of iron. The iron was still difficult enough to, to refine. It was still a, a, a expensive metal, and therefore you had Roman decided to use iron for weapons because we- it, it made a great weapon. It made great armor. So yeah, when you talk about Bronze Age and Iron Age, a lot of times you're talking about you know both tools and weapons at that point. It's when we had steel, that cheap steel. That's when we started seeing being used in buildings, and that wasn't until like the 19th century we had that. So the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. So now the the big thing about uh, the the big difference between bronze and iron is that iron has a much higher smelting point. Making iron on a larger scale would would have to wait for better uh, mining techniques because you had to get coal. Coal was the only thing you could burn that would get hot enough to, to, to melt iron. Now, you could use charcoal, but charcoal was highly... There was a high manufacture process in that, and it also chopped down all your trees all around you. So you would, you know, if you were... If you're trying to make a lot of iron from charcoal, you'd want to be foresting the whole area, and then uh, now you don't have any animals and to, you know to hunt, and so it was it, it was a um, a self-stopping process. So what you're saying is, is that outside of especially things like using it for weapons, we've been in the Bronze Age all the way up until about the 19th century. Sounds like these people just kept on using bronze for most of their common metal usages. 
it, the iron really did, was mostly an effect on them when somebody came walking through the door with an iron sword and said, you're going to obey me. Well, I do know that the Romans, for a period of time, were using lead utensils. They used lead for a lot of things, for yep. plates, um, uh, knives, and spoons. And, of course, you also got to remember, this isn't everybody. You know, you would have, this would be the, the wealthy people who had access to metal on a regular basis. You know, your your poor people still used wooden forks uh, or wooden utensils of some kind, wooden spoons, yep. um, wooden bowls. Uh, you know, they might have a metal pot, or they, or they might not. Uh, R- Romans actually lived pretty well. I mean, they had flush toilets, they had sewers, they had plumbing. The, the lead pipes, lead was nice because you could, you could beat it thin, roll it into a pipe, and sort of fold it over and seal it, and stick it in the walls. Now, lead, the lead pipes themselves would would uh, the uh, the water from Rome was really high in cal in, in calcite. So these suckers would basically get a nice coating of calcium on the inside, and you would, didn't have to worry about getting any lead poisoning from from the pipes. They were after, after about a couple of years of use, they were safe. Uh, what the Romans really did that was bad was the use of, uh, especially among the highborn, was using uh, lead oxide. It's white, so it made a great made a great makeup, mm-hmm. and they liked boiling their wine in lead vessels because it made it sweet. The reason why we used lead paint up until recently was because lead oxide is very white. Yeah. It's going to replace the titanium oxide instead. And kids like to eat lead, uh, lead paint because it's sweet. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing is you got to remember, you're not going to have a lot of these advanced metals. Just, just to point this out, I mean, they didn't have titanium back then, not just because they didn't think of they didn't think of it or they hadn't discovered it, but but things like titanium, like titanium doesn't occur naturally in nature by itself, and it's a major process to refine it. And uh, as I understand it, you need electricity to refine titanium and to, to separate it. And it's only commercially available only in in Russia and Canada. You're not going to have some of these advanced metals. I'm not even really sure when aluminum comes into play. About the 1900s. Yeah. Okay, so, so I mean, that's just my point. It's not, it's not that you, if you want to do an alternate where, oh, well, they, you know, this is a Roman with titanium swords, you have to think about, okay, well, it's an alternate. So, okay, so they have titanium, but how did they get it? I mean, what, what did you change? What did you make alternate? Did you make it so that titanium occurs naturally? And if you do that, then you're changing, you know, you're changing chemistry. Or was it that they have they discovered batteries and they figured out some electro, electrical process to separate it? Because then you can say, well, well, then they they also have electricity somehow, um, which they they could have had batteries. That's right. There's the Babylonian batteries. Well, batteries are very simple technology, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they never occurred to most ancient societies, but a battery is easy to build. It's very easy to build. And, yeah. and even the most primitive people could build batteries. That's another thing. That's another cool thing to think about. Uh, it just occurred to me. You know, if you're French worthy and you go to this world and it's an ancient world and you want to, you know, charge up something, you could build a battery back in that time. The materials are there. The little clay jars they found that basically was found inside of those, those jars, they were batteries. The Two competing theories are, one, they were used in religious ceremonies to give the worshippers a shock when they touch something, or, and this is something that, that a lot of folks are poo-pooing because it means they have to go through their collections and start checking every 
gold object, make sure it's not a gold-plated object. Right. Yeah, electroplating seems to be pretty plausible. Yeah. Because they would actually be looking at those batteries. They would be good for that. They also probably may have been used for medicine. Uh, oh, could have been. Electri- you know, if you got pain in your feet and so forth, we have rediscovered that electricity in certain, in certain applications will help alleviate pain. Well, not only that, but there's also the possibility of just cool factor. They figured out they could do this. They didn't know what to do with it, but it was really neat, so they did it. Yeah. There's been a lot of, of changes that have occurred, some of them fast, some of them slow. You know, they, they created boats, boats got bigger, boats got sails. But there were a certain periods of time called them renaissances. And, and of course, we're very familiar with the, the most recent renaissance. But wasn't there a renaissance back uh, in Greece uh, or, uh, before the time of the Romans? Oh, yeah. I mean, th- yeah, that's the time when the Anakathera device was made. Uh, what? The Anakathera device. Uh, it, basically, it's a myth. They found these bronze gears in the, in the Mediterranean. They're this all welded shut together from corrosion. But when they x-rayed them, they realized these are toothed gears. And they were thousands of years old. And it turned out that they were a, a computer of, of sorts. They calculated where the sun was going to be, where the stars are going to be, where, where the plants are going to be. It would predict when eclipses were. To keep track of the lunar cycle. It was a computer. Just, and it was an amazing piece of, of technology for the time. As I understand it, um, they believe it was coming out of Alexandria, mm-hmm. and uh, the reason why it's called the anti—is uh, Antikythera or anti? Yeah, I think it's Antikythera device. It's the reason why they call it that is because it's an island Kythera which they found it off of, and that's why they call it the Antikythera because it's off of Kythera. But um, apparently, yeah, you, you you turn the gears and it would it would move dials and it would give you it would say you know the moon's going to be here or you know you're going to have an eclipse on this date. It was actually a pretty interesting piece of technology. And it probably wasn't a one-off. It probably was one of several. Well, they had you know, they had water clocks. They had steam engines, rudimentary steam engines. So yeah, there was a a nice Renaissance period during that time. Oh, hero of Alexandria was a showman. He made robotic plays. Mm-hmm. Right, they ran off of nothing more than uh, sand and gravity. Robotic plays. Yeah, don't think Terminator. Think cuckoo clock. They were clockwork figures. Right, right. It, 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 yeah, they were very rudimentary, very, but neat nonetheless. Sure. If you if you came into a town and all of a sudden you saw all these things that basically what we always consider like the show places, Christmas show places at Macy's or somebody like that, where you have people that are going back and forth and beating on a drum and things like that. For your people coming from the the villages and, the, and coming in and seeing that for the first time in their life, it would be a wonder to see. Oh yeah, he, Heroes when he created the first, he created the uh, Alio pile, which is the, the little steam engine, the, the uh, metal ball uh, with the two no nozzles on it that would spin around as as it, as it produced steam. He also made a vending machine. Uh, he also making use of uh, expansion of water, uh, heat with water and so forth, uh, created an automatic door opener that would open open temple doors simply by lighting a fire in a special urn. And it would heat the water up and create pressure changes and open the doors up. And don't okay. forget, you, you got Archimedes who had cranes. He had the Archimedes screw, which could, mm-hmm. could pull water up from a lower area to a higher area. So there was a lot of 
uh, mechanics. Now, most of this, you got to remember, most of this is going on in Alexandria. I mean, that was like really the hot spot to be in. And, yeah. and it was in, in Greece as well, but, but Alexandria was definitely had, even had it over Greece at that time. Rome took advantage of this too. Rome. Oh, sure. There's a spot, actually, not even in Rome, it was actually another location that was even in Italy. It was another location they found. Basically, a series of water w- of, of mills, uh, no, not mills, uh, yeah, uh, grain mills going down a hill, and they're all powered by water wheels. It was an automated grain grinding factory. Before the Common Era, Alexandria was like one of the hot places to be. Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay, because oh, yeah. they had all kinds of technology, and, of course, they were a gathering place of information. I mean, that's where the Library of Alexandria was. So a fringeworthy team might go want to go to the Library of Alexandria for the sole purpose of recording all the available information there. But when they got there, they'd run into a big problem. And Lix, what was that problem? Oh my God! They would have to dig and dig and dig. Yeah, because nothing is cataloged properly. The only person who knows anything about it is the librarian. And you know, they would spend their lifetime learning how to, you know, learning what was cataloged where, and they're the only ones that would know it. And it wouldn't be one librarian, it would be thousands of librarians, because oh. each one would know the contents of a single room, which was filled with scrolls, right? That's correct. And his apprentice would learn from him where the scrolls were, too, because it was apprenticeship. They, you know, they wouldn't just simply die and go, okay, now it's your turn to learn everything is. No, they'd be apprenticeships as well. So at least be two people who might know everything is in that room. So there'd be a lot of negotiation going on. If you went to the Library of Alexandria as a French team and you said, I want to look up no information about this, you'd have to work your way through a variety of people to find that information. And then you'd have to deal with the whole aspect of how are you going to record this without somehow causing I don't know. I mean, how would how would people of this time view modern recording devices? Would they just, you know, could you hide them? You know, wave the magic thing over top of it and do a scan? I mean, <laughs> well, I think I think um, the way cameras are today, you know, digital cameras, you could if if you knew, say, you got a French team and that's what they're going there for, and they know where they're going and they know what they're going to be doing, you could easily craft a camera to look like a medallion. Uh, you could even make it look like a like a maybe like a uh, spyglass, and you could use the premise that you don't see so well, so you need to use the this magnifying glass to to enlarge the text, and you could have a uh, you know a micro camera built into that, so you could get around that if you were prepared. Or it could be put into a staff and use that at the head of the staff. So you sit a staff in a certain position, you have a fixed distance from the from the the camera to the work table, hopefully you scout out and figure out how, how, big, how high the work tables are, and basically be able to take photographs that way, too. True. Okay. Right. But if you had somebody who was really good with languages, going to a place like the Library of Alexandria might allow them to actually create a Rosetta Stone, a modern translation matrix from one language to another that might actually unlock some of the documents that we have in our own world that no one's ever been able to read. They're not just storing these scrolls. They're actually supposedly able to understand them. They would be able to help you understand what some of these different languages are and the changes in the languages. To them, these, a lot of these languages are fresh. That is another book. I can't remember what it was. Maybe Geographica or something like that. But there was this book one of the one of the people from Alexandria had written, and it was lost. 
and the only reason we didn't know that that book existed was because it was that book was written about in another book that that mentions it, and it's like that's one of the books that they wanted to ha- that they would want to have. The scientists would love to find historians. Oh, there's there's several plays written by various Greek authors which were praised in other books. No one's got there's no co- no, no surviving copies of those plays. So that would be something to get a hold of. Now, I think what would be very interesting is to be a good place to you know, in, inject the Fringeworthy into this. Mm-hmm. Um, you're tooling through you know, Library of Alexandria. You're on there for a completely different mission, just gathering information, and you come across a Tremelin skull. Or, skull not skull. Scroll. Scroll. Ooh. A Tremelin scroll. Scroll. <laughs> and... Or a, you're you're reading this scroll about you know some group of people, and all of a sudden there's an etching on it of a tremelon, and maybe it refers to one of the pyramids or, or something like that. And, you know that's where you could go with this from a fringeworthy adventure. Right, because all these worlds that we're talking about are connected to the French Fest, so they're all being touched by people either directly because they're remnants of people who have fled the Tamellan uh, Fringeworthy War, or they could have been archaeological or sociological groups that may have come even 10, 20, 30,000 years in the past who might have left things. I mean, just because there's a world which is not ready for contact uh, by the Commonwealth, it doesn't mean that there weren't people that would go to those worlds occasionally, especially if they looked like the people who lived there. There are other hot places to be, too, around the same time period. Uh, India is going through a lot of changes. China. Three major religions are being founded about this time. You know, uh, Buddhism, Confucianism are being formed about this same time. So this is a fairly, uh, you know, interesting time period to be in. And, and if this world is a prime world, it's quite possible for you to go from one of these prime centers to another, to another, to another, because those portals were not placed on those worlds randomly. I mean, there was something of interest to somebody, and if you were a old meller and you needed to go from place to place pretty rapidly in order to keep working them toward development, toward commonwealth acceptance, it would make sense that at the time in which the portals were created on the world, that they would be somewhere close to a major center for change. It makes you think about the location of portals on Earth Prime. What was there in Richardson Mountains? What was there in the middle of Siberia that the, the villains decided was important to put a portal by? Right. Yeah. Uh, another thing you got to think about, um, you get, you know, we're, we're leaving out, completely leaving out Mesoamerica. You know, you got like the Olmecs, yeah. which were roughly around uh, 1,000 B.C. I think so. Like, um, 1400, something like that. They were a pretty advanced society. They had they built large structures and um, and those heads. They had comp- All those heads. Yeah, the heads, the big the big heads. So they were a thriving culture, you know, to create art like that. Maybe thousands of foreign BC. You're talking about early Mayan culture forming. The earliest Mayan culture was about 3000, 2000 BC. Uh, but they started really coming into into into, into play all around 200, 200 uh, uh, AD. Any society that has advanced artwork, especially large sculptures and stuff, means that you have people who can specialize in that. Those are people who don't have to hunt for their own food. Somebody is feeding them to do artwork. Then you've got an advanced society because they can afford to have those kind of people in society. 
the local priest, or in the case of the Mayans, the uh, god king. The Mayans are interesting also in that they had, you know, cities that were all over the place, but they're even more independent than the Greek city-states were. The Mayan city-states were very, very independent. You know, each one of them would raid the others for, for captives for various ceremonies and so forth. This, which explains why uh, when Cortes arrived in Mexico and Central America, the, the Aztecs didn't fight the way you expect them to because the Aztecs were looking to take prisoners. They weren't looking actually to wipe everyone out. Because you want prisoners so you can actually sacrifice them to your gods. But they, of course, they quickly learned to change their style of warfare after the first couple of uh, skirmishes with the, with the, with the uh, Spanish. But the Mayans are interesting because they are the only culture in Mesoamerica that developed a written language. And, and my understanding is, is that Mayan cities were huge. I mean, even by any standard, they were huge. The Mayans developed a, a form of agriculture that was basically re- self-renewing. Uh, I would say like 100,000 or, or more. Yeah, right. Huge. And later the Aztecs it took that and improved upon it. Tenochtitlan was a million people. And this right. is we're talking a city and bigger than cities in Europe. Right, and, and we're talking about a time back when if you looked, right, if you looked in Europe during this same time period, there was no city in Europe that size. So, so these people were significantly advanced in a lot of ways. If you have cities, if you have uh, people like that you, who go from place to place, they tell stories. And a lot of the legends that we have today came from these various cultures interacting with one another. And one of the things that the Fringeworthy could do, uh, or they might find of interest, would be to go and try to track down some of these legends to see if they had any fact. Uh, was there, in fact, a, a land of Atlantis? If you're going to do an Atlantis adventure, Fringeworthy is the way to go for oh, yeah. that. Because it's you don't have to explain it. You know, you don't have to get in any kind of fights or arguments with anybody of where it is. or you know, It's just like, look, this is where it is because this is an alternate and that's where I put it. Um, my idea, I thought would be kind of neat, would be if you had Atlantis before the last Ice Age ended, when the water tables were 300 feet lower, and Atlantis was on a body of water, um, say beyond the just slightly beyond the, the, the pillars of Hercules, like where it's supposed to be. And then when the Ice Age ends and the water tables rise, Atlantis actually does sink. You know, and then those people might say maybe they migrate somewhere else. And I get agitated with the, you know, when they, when they talk about Atlanteans being advanced, you know, we're talking about advanced for that time period. Like maybe they had steel already or something there where they had you know advanced items and maybe some advanced medicine but not like spaceships and flying around and you know like hovercrafts and stuff like that and having a bubbled city they could have advanced tactics in warfare they could have, understand what the flying wedge was column attacks or using pikemen making a pike wall uh, or whatever a shield wall things that people who are used to just attacking mano a mano would just have total defenselessness against. It, you know, it doesn't have to be a technology that actually involves an artifact. It could just be a good idea that's developed enough that when they run into it, it's revolutionary. Right, and they can have, uh, you know, maybe even their language is somewhat modern. One of the things that, that is interesting about language is that before Latin came along, most languages had some flaws in them, which is why modern languages are different than ancient languages when they're when they're 
differentiated. Um, I don't exactly know the flaws. I'm not, I'm not a linguist, but I've just you know, read about how the older languages died away because they weren't as good as the newer language. It wasn't just the, it wasn't just that the people replaced them because people could replace them and the language could stay. It could take over the people that get into that area. But languages are kind of uh, kind of evolve much the same way animals do. The stronger you know survive and and propagate, um, which is why we don't still speak Latin because English is better than Latin. It's more evolved than Latin. Well, that, that's what I mean. I mean, it, for for an advancing society, it's 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 better for our purpose. So, what other legends uh, would it be fun for a fringeworthy group to go and chase after? You want to go to the Indiana Jones venue? What did happen to the Lost Ark? What did happen to the Holy Grail? Some of those items could actually be Tamelan artifacts or Commonwealth artifacts, and they might actually have real powers involved with them. Yeah, for we know in Ethiopia in this little church sits a sits a Tamilian object that no one's going to be allowed to look at because it's because we're not because we're not clean. I like the idea of going to find the uh, the treasure of El Dorado, the fountain of, of youth. Mm-hmm. That could be a real place, and it's it's not going anywhere. So they could travel over and actually try to hunt it down. Or is there a race such a Bigfoot? If you go back three, four, five hundred years before man comes in and starts, you know, doing what man does, uh, there might actually be enough of them to find. What happened to the first colony in Jamestown? I actually ran an adventure that was similar to that uh, that I ran at uh, Gen Con. Uh, I placed it in South Carolina, and they even referenced Jamestown. I said an adventure that took place there in the 1600s. And it was a French colony where a French colony never was. But it still had all the aspects of the, Fr- uh, of the French. They were still worried about pirates coming up from the Caribbean or possibly even crossing over from Spain. Uh, they had troubles with the Indians uh, because they were using the land of the Indians in a fashion the Indians didn't like. Most of this I cribbed from an article in National Geographic. The Indians actually had crops but they let the land lay fallow for extended periods of time because they knew it would renew the land. So when the settlers came, they found all this land that was being laid fallow, and they said, oh, hey, nobody's using this land, so we'll start putting crops in it. And the Indians, because they didn't have a sense of ownership and that the land belongs to us and not to you, they couldn't tell the settlers not to do it. They said it's not good to do that, and the settlers didn't believe them or they didn't understand because they had no idea about crop rotation. The language was very hard to do. So that's what caused some of the friction between the Indians and and, and the colonists is that they're slowly moving out and taking over land that the Indians aren't trying to hold on to. But at the same time, the Indians don't like that because they can see what the, what the columns are doing, that they're building buildings and they're not taking care of the woods the way they were supposed to and, and things like that. So you could have this happen over a long period of time in various places where you have colonists from various countries and uh, arriving and having to deal with indigenous populations. And it would be different in, let's say, Indonesia versus the Americas, but a lot of the, the same kind of situations would arise because of the clashes of culture, and because, uh, not just culture in the sense of, of religion and language, but also the fact that one is an agricultural versus one might be pastoral or hunter-gatherer. 
Now, another good one, uh, talking about mysteries and stuff, is going back to ancient Egypt and seeing the pyramids actually being built. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, That'd be great. It's, it's possible that it was done through purely reasonable methods, you know, um, uh, rolling them on, on logs. or uh, I saw one theory where they, I don't, I don't even know if this is possible, but they had some kind of like kite-like thing where it was, it would actually lift up on the boulder. The prevailing theory is they built a ramp around the pyramids and went up. The great thing about Fringeworthy is that on one world, the Egyptian pyramids could be built one way, and on another world, the Egyptian pyramids could be built an entirely different way. If you look up this guy, uh, Edward Lee Scalianen, it's, it's uh, L-E-E-D-S-K-A-L-N-I-N. He, uh, he built this thing called Coral Castle in Florida. Oh, I visited that. That's wonderful. Did you, yeah, and that was one guy who did that. He did, apparently did it mostly by himself. The door to his castle is so well balanced, you can use a finger to open it. It's, it's nine tons can be opened by a five-year-old child using one finger. Well, one of the places that I think would be really cool to adventure in would be Arabia. Because I was recently reading Sir Richard Burton's translations of the uh, Thousand and One Arabian Nights. In a lot of these stories, they've got animals that are talking. And what if on one world you went to, animals could talk? Then you could basically, uh, the, the GM could mine these stories for all kinds of great ideas as to, you know, adventures and things like that. I mean, even without bringing in the supernatural, you just say, okay, this is a parallel universe. Things are a little different here. The animals can talk. And so now you've got societies where you've got animals commenting on people as they go by. Uh, animals are giving, you know, philosophical ideas to people uh, or uh, commenting on people's inability to handle their their wives or husbands when the animal is perfect, perfectly capable of handling a harem of maybe, you know, 20 or 30 hens. You know, why can't you take care of your, your, your wife, Mr. Farmer? You're still dealing with the same culture in the sense of technology and things like that. I mean, religions wouldn't change. Uh, the, uh, the technology would still be there. But something like that could make a big difference in adventure in the far past. Chris, I have a question. Are the, are the people all vegetarians? People eat people today, so I'd say no. You're a cow in a field. You know that, okay, yeah, my days are numbered, so you're very philosophical about things, I guess. Yeah, sure. Christmas is carnage. <laughs> From the, the movie Babe. <laughs> they dealt with it in The Lion King. They said, okay, so you eat this person, and you eat that person, and you eat that person, and we're okay with that, huh? Okay. <laughs> Any society in which they were each other's food, then they would. Otto, uh, yes. we haven't really gotten into really past, much past the first couple centuries AD or, or CE. Is there any other thing that you think would be really cool about adventuring in the far past that we haven't covered? It would be interesting to look into some of the lost medical practices from back in that time because apparently there might have been some acupuncture going on in, I think, some of the Peruvian mummies. They found tattoos on, on, on spots that would be, you know, just little dot tattoos on spots that are associated with acupuncture. The, the American Indians... There was, a, I don't know if it was just one tribe or several of them, but there was one that had this uh, operation for repairing a lost nose. They would cut a section out of the forehead and fold it over. Oh, that was Indian Indian. 
Oh, was it Indian Indian? I'm sorry. I thought yeah. it was American Indian. Nope, Indian Indian. <laughs> but, but regardless, there's just some of these really ancient... Uh, there was, I think, some evidence of uh, brain surgery on, on some really ancient people. Oh, trepanation, um, yeah. yeah. There's, there's Homo sapiens and even Neanderthal skulls with trep, trep, you know, holes in the skull that, were, that healed up. That were apparently... Um, because I think the cuts were, were too... Um, too regular. Too regular for it to be an accidental injury. And, you know, these... It'd be kind of neat to see some of these ancient procedures to see, to see them in context. Uh, you know, again, you gotta remember these are game masters running these games, so you know it's, it, it, they may not be accurate or whatever, but it's fun to play with. So that that would be something I would like to look into. And oh, and I would love to see this would be gruesome as hell, but I would love to see the Black Plague in full swing, just just to get a feel for what it was really like, because I don't think we can imagine what it was like to be in that situation. We're going to have to hit that on the next session when we that talk about good. the time period that we're in. Uh, John, do you have anything else you want to add? Actually, one area I would love to visit because I actually don't know very much about it would be the African empires, the African kingdoms that were around at this time uh, down in in, in in Africa, which which is not which are not very well documented, and it'd be interesting to see some of those kingdoms in full in full bloom. Okay. All right. So what it sounds to me is that the one of the best methods for creating an adventure in the far past, in the time in which we're talking about, is to find a cultural center uh, in any country that you want to go to and find something about that culture that you want the uh, adventurers to discover, to experience, okay? and build that adventure around that. And you could throw in additional things like uh, fringe pirates or people who are refugees, Ancient, you know, wise men, people who appear to be magicians, who in fact are using technology from off-world. You can do whatever you want to spice up to make it more of an adventure for the players, to make them more interested. But you know, look for something that's going to be different. So when they go from world to world, they're not always going into an ancient nomadic culture. That each culture that you bring them to is going to have flavor and style. And there's so many of these worlds, I mean, so many of these different towns and, and, and places in the time period which we're talking about that you really should have hundreds of story ideas that are or at least hundreds of cultural uh, significant differences that you could play upon. And make your adventures really pop for the players. So when they go through, they really know they're in a different world than the world in which they left. Well, thank you once again for joining us for the Fringeworthy broadcast. And we will be returning uh, with more on uh, adventuring in the far past because it is such a wide period of time. But, you know, you never know. Next time it might be a totally different topic that you because we have a lot of material to release and we're not going to just keep hitting the same topics one after another. So please be patient with us. It is coming. And uh, thank you again for being with us. And this is Bruce Shepard from Atlanta saying, remember, there are millions of worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John from Seattle, and remember, keep your powder dry and keep those cards and layers coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, don't shoot the portals. They shoot back.
no commercial distribution or derivative works are allowed. You must fully attribute.